I am in my podcast gear. So this is, this is about what I would look like when I show up. I'm also in my Saturday gear. This is in honor of my son, who's a big Man City fan. He's probably watching the game right now for Premier League Saturday. Podcast is a very special part of our culture here at CFHA. It's become a part of our culture. I remind people that, you know, on any given, you know, webinar or something like that, we might bring in, you know, 50 to 100 people into a webinar. But every quarter we get 4,000 people listening to this podcast. And some of them are CFHAers, some of them are not. This is a key way for us to kind of reach the world outside of CFHA as well as nourish those of us here. So I am super happy to have this first live ever podcast. Uh, we're going to do some mic checks here uh, first. So I'm going to have everybody just like talk in, in order so the guys in the back can give us a thumbs up. And then Grace will uh, actually get us going. Good morning, Mike Check. Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. I'm going to try to be good. It'll be hard. <laughs> Mike Check, good morning. <coughs> we got a hot mic situation. Yep. <laughs> Mike Check, good morning. I'm going to try not to cough through this whole thing. I just inhaled my water. So, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. We are so thrilled to be here in person. I keep saying I listen to all these podcasts and it feels like when they make it to their live show, like that's when they've hit it big. Uh, so this is like peak highlight moment for us at the podcast. We are going to start the way that we always do with a little bit of icebreaker and introductions. I am so thrilled to have our entire team with us here this morning, along with a special guest. And I always ask a question to start us off because in the very early days of the podcast, we always ended up talking about the weather. And I was like, guys, we can do better than this. I know it. Uh, and so today, along the lines of our theme of workforce, I asked each of our co-hosts and guests to tell us about the very first job that you ever held. Uh, so I'll introduce myself. I'm Grace Pratt. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and serve as the behavioral medicine faculty at a community-affiliated residency program in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma called Integris Health. And my very first job was working in an after-school program at a school. I would get out of high school and then drive over to the elementary school and then somehow think I could provide some guidance to these children that were really just a few years younger than me. But my other first job was when I worked at CVS and I had one of my most embarrassing moments there because I was trying to do everything right. And I was working the cash register and it was one of my first days and uh, someone came and wanted to buy cigarettes. And so I grabbed them and I turned around and I asked him to see his ID and this like 55 year old man, <laughs> He was like, mm, okay, I was just trying to follow the rules. Uh, so that was one of my interesting first job experiences. So we usually go around the circle in Zoom. I'm gonna have us go down the table today. So at the end, um, if you would start by sure. introducing yourself, Jen. Yeah. Okay, hi, I'm Jen Thomas. I'm a family med physician and medical director of integrated behavioral health at Morris Hospital, which is a small community rural hospital about two hours Southwest of Chicago. So I'm the newest member of the podcast. It's very surreal 
thrilled to be um, on a stage with these people. I've been like fans of them since 2019 and listening to their voice on my drive to work. So it's very bizarre to be here and really flattering. But um, yeah, so my first job, let's see, I was rural Illinois, Southern Illinois, basically Kentucky. Um, my first job, I was 14. So I don't know if that was even legal. My older sister got me the job. It was at the Sarsaparilla Pony Farm. So some ingenious woman had a, a farm and some ponies and her business model was birthday parties for kids. So we were the workers uh, with bright red shirts and the little bow tie, the cowboy tie with the big, you know, um, skull <laughs> or a steer head on it. But we would take kids out um, around her farm on pony rides. And then we did some cowboy themed birthday party stuff. So it was a great chance to work with the horses and groom them. And we got to clean out their stalls. So it was very, you know, salt of the earth type of first job. Learned a lot. Yeah, it's great to be here. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> My name is Bridget and I'm a licensed psychologist by trade. BHC, and I work at Community Health of Central Washington in Washington State. Not the greatest time for my voice to give out, but here we are, it's fine. Uh, but even less uh, riveting, uh, the next thing I'm about to say is uh, my first job was drying cars at car dealerships after somebody else pressure washed them. Like, I didn't even get to pressure wash these cars. <laughs> I feel like I would have liked that. Um, but yeah, we had these sham towels, chamois yeah. towels, uh, that Stacy and I talked about earlier. And I taught her something important about what a chamois towel is. <laughs> and you just basically go around and sop up the water mm -hmm. from the car dealership cars. So. Uh, that's what my first job It's was. not too late. It's not too late. <laughs> you know, I have these days where, you know, like when things are very ambiguous. I know what you're going to say. You're not really sure if your work day is done. But at that job, you had the car and it was wet and then you... It was dry. And then it was dry. <laughs> so I have fantasies of still doing that. I don't have my car here, but listen. Do <laughs> you need that? You let me know. I, I just want to say that that's a common phenomenon in this line of work where th th there's so much that's left undone sometimes or, or just sometimes the complexity of doing the work. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into like uh, Starbucks or I'm checking out at the supermarket and I'm like envying that checkout person. You just like did Clock this. Out, you're done. You, you slided my stuff through. You took my money, and you're done. And then, and then at the end of your day, you're not thinking about this job. You're just going home. I, yeah, it makes I, me feel better. Thanks, Nicole. Yeah. All the time. All the time. All right. Well, I am up. Um, good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever time it is when you're listening. My name is Monica Williams Harrison. I am a licensed clinical social worker by trade, um, but I am a clinical trainer and practice coach with the University of Washington's Ames Center. My first job was at this kind of retail, it's like a lower scale Walmart, if they could get that close, <laughs> um, called Roses. And I worked in the railway department at Roses. Why this is so significant is because I want to let you all know, that was back when you actually put things on railway number one, I would be so upset because customers would come in and they would put their stuff on railway and then there was no more. And like, I wanted that futon or I wanted that. So I would take their railway slip off. No. And then be like, no. I don't know how to do it. It's misplaced. And then buy it. Just saying. Subsequently, you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> I love it. Hello, my name is Marcy Nielsen. Uh, I am a 
health policy nerd by training, and I practice as a health policy nerd. Thank you, Deepa, for calling that out as one of the categories of people who love CFHA. We're all nerds here. We're like, all nerds Everybody here. in the audience. Yep. Yep. Yes. Um, so I have worn many hats over the course of my career, but mostly I, I do federal and state and now global uh, health policy focused on both public health and primary health care. My first job at the age of 12 uh, was to detassel corn in the cornfields of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know what that is, basically you're preventing corn sex. So <laughs> look it up later. Corn. And reveal <laughs> parts in the who, who knew cornfields could be so sexy? Um, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I have lots of thoughts around that, Marcy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, um, uh, hi everybody who's listening, uh, I'm Neftali Serrano, or Neftali Serrano, whichever way you're able to say it, and I'm the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, um, and my first job was, uh, my first job was pretty unremarkable. I was a reading tutor uh, at a center for kids who had trouble reading. Um, what was more remarkable about it was this picture I have in my head of like what I was wearing on the day, the first day that I went, um, because this was this was the uh, early '90s, and I had this uh, purple jacket, purple suit jacket on because you know that's just what you wore in the '80s, and this like pastel-y type blend of ill-defined colors as a, for a tie. And for some reason, that just sticks with me that, that I just went to work my first job in that weird getup. And I think about what my kids would say right now <laughs> and how embarrassed they would be that I'm I I'm impressed you put a tie on. Yeah, <laughs> dress for success. Well, I was, you know, it was my first job. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know any better. I just, like, thought that's what you wore. I, I don't yeah. think I wore that subsequently to the, to the work because I realized <laughs> as a reading tutor, you don't really need to dress up like that. But, you know, keep it professional. Yeah, that was my first job. <laughs> All right. Uh, good morning. Uh, Deepu George. I work at uh, the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley in McAllen, Texas. Um, uh, work in the family medicine department. My first job, I had to invent it for myself. I moved from the U.S. back to India in 98. Uh, let's just say the schooling system here and the schooling system in India are in different wavelengths. And I was way underprepared to enter junior college in India when I went. So the way teachers taught was they would dictate notes and you are basically writing. All of my colleagues were super speed writers, right? So they were really quick and I always fell behind. Case in point, I failed all my exams in that first semester, right? Because I just didn't know what to do. And my most notorious class was the history professor. He would literally just get in class and everybody would have their pen and paper, and he would just start dictating, and then everybody would be writing. So I went up to him one day and I said, I said, sir, I noticed that you already have your notes, and I noticed that we struggle, well, I struggle taking notes. Could I type them up for you so that we can just print it and distribute it? And then the photocopying machines near my house where there was a business, it was about, one rupee cheaper than where 
my university was. So I would type it, print it, get it copied and bound, and I would sell it at a higher price to my classmates. <laughs> <laughs> so hustle from day one, you know what I mean? <laughs> I love hearing that. I love every time learning more about our colleagues. Um, so we typically do our introductions, and then we also have a moment for news and notes. So I think, Naftali, there's something that you wanted to feature there. Yeah, so um, yes, and, and we should give a shout out to Kevin Ray Dean. Yes. We, we all, so Kevin Ray Dean is a, the editor of our podcast. Uh, so he's listening to us right now as he works on, on the editing here. Shout out, Kevin does a great job for us. Um, yeah, we miss you, Kevin, and we look forward to seeing you. Uh, news and notes. So Kevin sometimes puts some music here. News and notes. Just keep an eye out for a spring CFHA virtual event. Uh, we're going to put it together as sort of a best of event. We're going to take some of the sessions, some of the highest profile and highest attended uh, and valued sessions from this conference. For those folks that weren't able to make it, as we uh, we miss our buddies that weren't able to be here, and for those of you who just you know, because the the funny thing about an in-person conference that's um, there's a lot of things that are better, but the thing you can't do is like actually see multiple sessions, right? So some of you may have actually not seen some sessions, wanted to go to them. You're gonna have a chance to kind of hopefully uh, get to those in our virtual event coming up this spring. So keep an eye out for that. The other note that I wanted to share is that, A, listen to the podcast. Uh, you can download it anywhere there's podcasts, and it's called the Integrated Care Podcast. If you're not a regular listener, we'd love to have you. Um, but also, we have, usually, we feature a special segment, and we've been doing a series of special segments lately that I'm calling Voices of Integrated Care, or Voices of CFHA. So if you have an innovative idea, or a cool project, or a passion area that you want to share with us and think would be a great fit for the podcast, send me an email. Um, I'm on the listserv, or you can find me on LinkedIn, or Neftali can put you in touch with me, uh, but we want to get just, you know, a five to 10 minute slice of what you're doing and include you on the podcast. But now I want to transition us to our primary topic. The theme of workforce has been so prevalent in this conversation and in this conference, and it's something we wanted to talk about further, but we also wanted to look at it from a lens of what's happening in policy and how does policy connect with what's happening on the ground? How does policy um, you know, make a difference for our workforce development and sustainment? And what does it look like to advocate for policies that are gonna make a difference there? And so that's why we have Marcy here with us today. We've brought on an expert, and then we're also going to share all of our lovely opinions, as we always do. Um, but I just kind of want to open up us up broadly with this question of, you know, to me, a, a, a small fish in the big pond, policy always feels really abstract and scary and just like this big, big thing. And so I wondered if we could kind of start bracketing our conversation with this idea of how does policy connect to what's happening on the ground in our clinics and, you know, for the people that are represented here in our room and in our listeners to the podcast? Well, um, I, I do think policy feels very mushy. My parents still don't really understand what I do for a living. Um, <laughs> And the way I think of policy is policy sets the framework 
for how we try to, to take care of our patients. And because we live in a country where about half of all healthcare is delivered through the public sector and half is delivered through the private sector, the way in which government pays for care impacts how the private sector pays for care. How we train the workforce is framed by policy because government helps us set the standards for who gets paid and who doesn't. And from the perspective of integrated behavioral health, where I think policy is really relevant to our work, particularly at this point in history, is never, I would argue, has mental health been more important, more visible, more at risk than it is uh, right now. And I've been, as I mentioned, working in policy for a long time. One of the things that makes policy fuzzy is a lot of what you're doing is trying to set the agenda for policy change. So it feels um, icky. I once had a very nice man who was dressed in his military class A's, sat next to him on an airplane ride, lovely conversation, and at the end of the, of the flight he said, and what is it that you do for a living? And I said, oh, well, I'm a lobbyist. And he said, your mother must be so ashamed. <laughs> and so I tell that story um, because policy is sometimes misunderstood to be this sort of um, icky, uncomfortable, uh, sneaky way of going uh, about trying to get what you want. But really, policy is, I would argue, two things. One, it's that framework for, for how we um, do our work, but advocacy is really where I think this organization can, can help us, particularly in the United States where um, we so need to be cognizant of the mental health crisis that's, that's happening, and you all are the perfect people to help us figure out how to increase access to care. And that comes back to workforce because we need more of you um, taking care of more of us. So, um, Marcy, there's so many directions to go there. And just for context, like you have taught me so much, Marcy. Pretty much everything I know about policy, I feel like my <laughs> conversations with Marcy over the years uh, have been instrumental. Um, but I think one of the questions I have for you, you mentioned how important this moment is, mm -hmm. right? Can you clue me in as to? why this moment is so special because we've had a mental health crisis for a long time, right? So that part's not necessarily new, but somehow, you know, you probably saw the uh, HHS report uh, came out mid-September, right? Somehow this is filtered all the way up to the, you know, uh, office of the president and they're saying now the things that we've been saying for a long time that in order to solve the mental health crisis we actually have to adapt policy to integrate physical and behavioral health across the entire spectrum of services so that message started in amongst you know our community and other adjacent communities and made itself up there and got noticed i'm just curious like can you detail how that happened like how how did the president and and his office and hhs how did they get this? Well, I can give you the, the cynical and the not-so-cynical um, perspective. The, the not-so-cynical perspective 
is it, it is hard to get on the radar screen of policymakers until you have an emergency. It's just the nature of how elected officials work. And although it is absolutely true, we have had a crisis in mental health for years, if not decades, it was someone else's crisis because there weren't enough, apparently, there weren't enough people arguing for the, the critical need of mental health services. And without going too far down sort of the academic black hole, in this country in particular, we focus on the deserving poor. So the deserving poor often don't make it to policymakers' radar screens. Well, now we're all the deserving poor. Now we all find ourselves in crisis because of COVID. Things that have been long broken now are in the, in the daylight. And, and so that is, that's the real reason that, that it's on people's radar screen. Having said that, we have done a wonderful job in this community of making this argument and creating models for how to take care of patients in need. And so what we say, I used to um, teach health policy uh, to medical students and graduate students, there, is a, there, there are many academic models and all of them include this notion of window of opportunity. You can work on something for 30 years, but if there's no crisis, there's no window of opportunity. The window of opportunity has opened like it has never been open in my lifetime. And I think you all are prepared to, to make the argument that the best kind of care, in my opinion, is the care that comes from people you know who you have a longitudinal relationship with, who you trust, where stigma is, is minimized, and where health and mental health are, are connected. Because of course, that's the, the sad truth about America, is we think the brain is separate from the body, which is also separate from the teeth. Um, we're over-specialized. Um, and, and you all bring a whole different vision that America desperately needs. I feel like one of the things that the HHS directive and President Biden's plan, it feels like it, we're at the, like the crescendo of things, like it has risen, the bases are loaded. Now that that's the state that we're in, and kind of give you kind of opening up the curtains to allow us to see that it wasn't so pretty to get there either, what are things we should be doing now as a community and as an organization? And I uh, think about that in a few ways. So one is, as a community, we are all on the front lines somewhere um, in some position of clinical management, practice management, or whatever. And as a community, on the other hand, is as a professional organization that represents multiple guilds, right? Like we're not... We're a non-guild, discipline-agnostic institution in that sense. So thinking about once the bases are loaded, or at least it feels like it's loaded, mm -hmm. what do we do? I'll give you a moment to think, just because I'm awed by the fact that Deepu just used the baseball analogy instead of a <laughs> cricket analogy. So, OK, so here's what the shortstop does. 
Um, <laughs> so I think it, I, I love this question um, because there really, there's a lot to do. First of all, I think it's really important to give a shout out to the folks who are trying to do the right thing. Um, so to the extent that you have connections to people uh, who are doing this work, advocating for, for this work, to say thank you. Thank you for recognizing that we need more payment for more professionals to get paid in Medicare. And you might think, really? Who, who cares? But as goes Medicare, so goes all private insurance. So that's sort of the first step. Um, I think messaging as, as uh, mad men as it may sound, I think we have to have similar messaging and we have to be asking for the same thing. And that, and that means what's next? What do we wanna do next together that we are reminding all of the stakeholders, payers, potentially patients, but certainly our community leaders. Again, this crisis in mental health is so staggering. I, I can't imagine there isn't any of us, not just as professionals, but as personal um, family members and friends that you don't have someone right now in crisis. It's an opportunity to talk about the broken healthcare system, and we can, we can talk about that till the cows come home, but we absolutely must pivot to, here's a way in which, in which to fix this. Here is a model of care that we need to embrace, and, and the more we are united in that vision and thinking about creative ways to get that vision out, and then agreeing on what those, let's say, next three policy things are. Are the next three policy things we need to pay for, we need to pay better for health professionals? Do we need to improve training, expand training? I mean, I'm, I'm not telling you what it is that you all need to do, but like unifying is everything. And I say that when I was a lobbyist, I was a, Full disclosure, I was a, a lobbyist for the labor movement. So I will always give you an answer that is power in numbers, take care of one another, and be inclusive. Inclusivity is going to be a part of uh, the solution because we're, we have a society in great fear right now. No. The inclusivity part is the part that kind of gets me, right? So when I start thinking about policy and how much it guides practice and vice versa, and like, all of this money because we are up at the bat, right? And so now there's all these monies that are ready to go for states. Like we need to increase the workforce. And then there's situations like the rules with Medicare or getting the data that exams that have to be taken are not culturally appropriate. And there are a lot of individuals of color who can't pass, right? And so then it starts to go just down this um, continuum of additional barriers that are not helping us expand our workforce whether it's the pay, whether it's people of color who can't pass the exam, right? Like whatever those, I just feel like it ends up being these multiple layers that continue to happen. And I'm not sure if all of the right people are always at the table when policies are being drafted or trying to be made, right? Because a lot of times Absolutely. it's about who is at the table to be a voice and say like, hey, wait a minute, hold up, what about this, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, 
what do people do, especially if I'm the BHC at the clinic and I've got my head down doing the work and I, you know, I have a part to play in that too because I have something to say that could drive policy. Like how do people get the information they have, the struggles that are happening and ideas that they have to the right line, I guess to say. Mm -hmm. So one piece of policy feels very technical and frankly, it's very time consuming and that is the stakeholder um, work, bringing coalitions together, ultimately deciding what, what you wanna focus on. But what you can think about doing just as individuals in your own communities is to say, I need to get this story out. I need to get people to care about what's happening and to help people connect the dots between a lack of, of providers in given communities because we're not training folks or, or, we, or we're training folks well, but we, we don't have culturally appropriate tests. Using the power of the op-ed, using social media, um, really telling the story in as simple way as possible and always bringing it back to patients. Because when people, I, I ran the state healthcare agency in Kansas, and when the physicians would come in to argue that we didn't pay enough to them for Medicaid, I would say, what kind of car did you drive on the way to the Capitol? Was that, was that a fancy car? Because you're arguing on behalf of you, and I need to understand as a policymaker, how does this help patients when you are paid appropriately? Because that's ultimately what it's about. So being able to talk, Monica, about here are all the patients who don't have access to care because we aren't getting creative about ways in which to train a community to take care of them, right? That, that part I just can't emphasize enough. The story needs to be about the people who need services and how we're best positioned to take care of them. Yeah, let me add something else that I learned from Marcy years ago as well, is because she, she gave that exact same spiel to me. Messaging is so stinking important, but it's hard because what oftentimes when we talk policy, especially as clinicians, for the folks in the audience that are clinicians, we're actually complaining, right? But complaining is not policy. <laughs> Policy is getting down to the nitty gritty of what is the change that you wish to see? And how should those that govern, whether it's by law or by regulation, how should they operationally shift the way that they are governing or overseeing, right? So if you can't get down to that level, then if you're sitting in front of, if you, if you have a place at the table, you don't have a message. You don't have anything operational that they can actually do, right? So part of that is just figuring out what it is. Now, a lot of times what you'll find, and we, we know this through our like technical assistance services, we'll go in and a clinic will be complaining about something that gets in the way of their integrated care services. And in their minds, it's a policy issue. A lot of times it's not policy. It's actually just clinic operations. It's a system, health system policy issue, not a not a county or state, state. issue or, or federal issue, or a lot of times it's, a, it's just a stinking guild issue, right? 
Um, a good example of that is a work that like Jeff Ryder and others have done with like the American Psychological Association to help clarify the ethics code. Because a lot of people believe that the APA ethics code is like law. And they, they interpret it very strictly and then they say, oh, well, we, we can't do X, Y, and Z in any great care because the APA ethics code doesn't allow us to, right? So that, that lack of clarity around what policy is and then the lack of clarity around messaging is really super huge. So I think the challenge for us is you have to clarify for yourself, what is it exactly that I need to be changed in the way that my practice is governed? And who is the one that oversees that, that I would then need to leverage? And then, and then that question comes of, how do I get to that table? Yeah. And how do I start telling the story so that others can come with me mm-hmm. to that table and have that strength to come to that table? All right, yeah. I'm talking too much, but there's a really great example here of how that happens in a discipline standpoint. Um, and I know this because of my wife, she's an emergency medicine physician. It's really fascinating how emergency medicine came to be as a profession. A big part of how it happened, it's one of the newest specialties in medicine, it came about in the 1970s. And one of the big ways that it came to be was because um, a TV show happened called Emergency. Emergency <laughs> with an exclamation mark. And it was just a Hollywood TV show. You can imagine like the chips type feel <laughs> to the show, 1970s kind of feel. For those of you who remember those, I just saw I chips do. on reruns. <laughs> I was there. Uh, I have no so, idea what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've talked about your different viewing habits as a kid. Yes, Deepu. Um, but, but this show popularized this idea that when you had an emergency, you would go to the emergency room and the reason it was called an emergency room because it was literally in those days, it was a room in the hospital. And actually in those days, other specialties would man the room. So you could have a psychiatrist actually manning the emergency room. You could have a, a, a internal medicine provider manning the emergency room, but they realized, wait a second, that's not really good care because you don't have a specialist that helps save people's lives in times of crisis available in the emergency room. And the, that show emergency was what propelled to the public get told the story of why this is important. And it said, this, is, this should be the standard of care. This is what you should get uh, when you go to the emergency department, right? That's the kind of story I'm passionate about, getting the public to feel like, hey, every time I go to primary care, I should be able to turn to that physician and talk about my whole life and then have that physician have the support I need right there for me immediately to work with those pieces of me that I bring that are just as important as the physical health pieces, mm. right? Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So what you're saying is we should be approaching Netflix. <laughs> I, I'm not even kidding. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. I'm, I'm, good. I'm just gonna. That's right. That's right. Can, can I mean, you not see Deepu yeah. playing the role of yeah. the VHC in yes. Netflix That's series? Right. I mean. Good, yes. as it was only ethical. Yeah, Hollywood inspires a lot of you know people going into medicine, right? You think it's going to be like Grey's Anatomy, and you're going to be all in your <laughs> cute scrubs and everything, and it's more like the TV show Scrubs, where it's like goofy and <laughs> just <laughs> bonkers. Yeah, absolutely. But no, having a, a BHC, you know, right next to you to, to deal with that mental health emergency. Heck yeah, that's a future I want to see. I want to practice there. <laughs> Let's go there. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. You can come to Washington. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> We're always hiring. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Never miss an opportunity. Yeah. 
So we've talked about policy in a few different ways. There's this big picture, very high level. I mean, when you were talking about the elements of policy that you're involved in, Marcy, you even mentioned global. Um, and then, Neftali, even a minute ago when you were saying some of the things that block us that get in the way, even are at the very local level, clinic or hospital. And so we're talking about some principles, I think, that cut across those in terms of knowing what you're asking for, having a clear story, not just complaining, but coming with solutions. How can we get a foothold? Like, where do we get started? Because it still feels really big. Um, so in terms of, you know, unifying our message and figuring out, like, who do we partner with or where do you start? Well, I actually might turn that one over to all of you. Um, not because I don't have answers, but because I don't think there is a single answer. And, and being able to tailor change to where you are and meet people where they are. So it's very different if you are, my hometown is Fremont, Nebraska, integrated behavioral health, what? Um, where I would need to start in, in a place like Fremont is very different than where, where I might approach, say, policymakers in Washington, D.C. I, I do think that CFHA is uniquely positioned because you all have the technical expertise and you have the cross-guild strength, which is going to be really important. There's nothing that makes policymakers eyes glaze over more than when you walk in the door and say, that other profession shouldn't be doing X. I mean, I know that you need to say that, but it's so much better when you can bring a vision for how to work together. Policymakers need solutions um, far more than they need um, problems further elucidated. Hmm. Um, so maybe, Neftali, over, over to you to talk about how sort of CFHA is positioning itself to be a place where you all can go um, to get started in this work. Yeah, so, so one of the ways we're doing is just by, by starting a policy, sort of like a policy SIG or a policy work group. And Julie Geiler on staff is, is bringing together a cohort of, of folks. In fact, she has a session at the conference later today. For those of you who are here, for those of you who are not, um, you can uh, email Julie and become part of that group. And what our goal is there is to actually empower folks to like um, uh, ha gain the skills to advocate where they are, right? So, so we're not yet marching on Washington. Um, yet. But that's, mm -hmm. yet, right? <laughs> but we want to have a group of folks who are adept mm -hmm. at that messaging piece, right? And that starts where you are. So I would ask, you know, and maybe I'll ask the rest of you guys, right? So what are the things right close to where you are, right, that irk you about the work you do, that keep you from doing the best work you can do for your patients and that keep you your care teams from from functioning at the highest level you think they can function and then start breaking that down and say what's the messaging that I need what's the fix here that I need and where do I go to to make that happen right so let me actually let's let's run this as a little test here okay because this is the kind of thing that Julie and that group are going to work on to build those skills up and then at some point what we want to do is then partner with 
organizations that, that have those established relationships and voices, this is again, this is Marcy and I have talked about this many, many times. This is her, her ideas. Go to NEMA, go to AFP, go to American Academy of Pediatrics, um, et cetera, et cetera, and have, the, have us partner with them to do that work when it relates to bigger issues. But I'll throw it out to, to you guys, right? Think about your work day in, day out. What are those things that keep you from doing the best work you can do? And have you, can you clarify for yourself, what is it that I want changed here? What would be the message that I could send if I was at the table with a stakeholder, right? So just throw one out. I mean, what, what would that be? Uh, yeah, payment for LMFT and LPCs and LMHCs. Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, so tell me a story, Bridget. Tell me a story about why it's important for you in central Washington to, to be able to, to hire those folks and have them be reimbursable. And by whom, by the way? Reimbursable by whom? Uh, Medicare uh, and private insurance should pay. Mm -hmm. uh, with the workforce, we need all hands on deck. And LMFTs and LMHCs are ridiculously qualified mm -hmm. to do this work. Uh, and, and I won't say what the other thing I was thinking about. With the way the current, don't want to say it. But the way, well, because we don't want to say about other guilds. It's just interesting that medical, like, you get paid, you know, and then an LMHC, an LPC, an LMFT, somebody who spent their entire training looking at family systems and behavioral change. Uh, we're not going to reimburse that. But if you were to walk into any other qualified medical provider, like, it's good to go. Uh, so. Yeah, and then it makes it more difficult for my budget because if we're, we're basically eating cost and then I'm making the argument to uh, my organization that we need to pay folks better so we can attract folks and retain folks. And they're like, well, but if you look at the budget, you know, and look at the budget. So then it just keeps going around and around in this circular reasoning where we can't pay them more because they don't get reimbursed. And so then, yeah, and then less folks are like incentivized to go into the field. So we're not getting um, as many people coming into the field and really, really good folks are taking different routes really late into their career. So um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it and affects, like you were saying, the patients, boots on the ground, every single day in a primary care clinic, somebody walks, actually, if you just walk out to the waiting room in the morning, uh, you know, 75%, maybe 100% of them would benefit from a consultation looking at their health behaviors and how we can you know, get them get get themselves going on the path that they want to go. So, well, you know, we're leaving a lot on the table here. Yeah, absolutely. So could so could I maybe like, I yeah. I feel like I'm a doctor now. I mean, sort of. Um, so like, I hear that story, and as a policymaker, my tear it up. I I I would here here would be my advice to you as a former policy maker slash staffer. If you could tell that story in the framework of here's, here's our community, here are all the people who either don't get care or get care too late, who would benefit from having better access to qualified clinicians. How do you get qualified clinicians? And, and, and you need to, um, here's where both telling a story as well as having some data serves you. So here's what we pay 
in central Washington for these kinds of providers. Here's, here, here's the, and this analysis is always back of the envelope, but here's what benefit we provide to the community. Here is an estimate of the hours of work we lose because we don't take care of people who, who need our help, right? So to have some numbers and then to be able to tell a personal story about a, a wonderful person that you wanted to hire who had energy and passion and they slipped through your fingers because you couldn't pay them uh, enough and right so so like right. combining here's the problem mm -hmm. here's an example of the problem and here's and this part's the hard part here's what I suggest for how to fix it mm -hmm. and and that's where combining your your um, efforts around um, a single or let's just say three, three particular solutions you wanna elevate so that people are hearing the same solution over and over and over. I would argue that the Biden roadmap for integrated behavioral health and many of the changes that they're advocating for in the physician fee schedule are because yep. those were the That's things right. that That's people right. kept hammering. And the reason that the Biden administration can do that, those are all regulatory changes. Right. So if you actually wanted to really get creative and crazy, you'd go to Congress and, and you would be able to change the law. But to the point you made earlier, Neftali, we're not quite ready to, to, to march on Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that was a long answer. I am so sorry. The specificity that, that I find helpful is um, at the tail end of that solution thing is actually go to the specific piece of the regulation that mm -hmm. needs to be changed because you just have sometimes you just have to remember that these people are, are, are people they go to work they go home they got kids they got stuff to do so if you tee it up easier for them to say look line 32 of this regulation is our problem yeah. right so that story I just told you if we adjust the language in line 32 to X Y and Z I'm going to walk away happy here, and we're going to get the job done for your for your constituents, right? Um, or a lot of times, it's not even you're talking with a representative or something. You're actually just talking like to a state Medicaid office and some That's sort right. of bureaucrat in that office. Mm -hmm. And what's going to make that bureaucrat happy is like make my job easy, please. Yes. Like just tell me what you want, right? <laughs> Write it down for me, right? Yeah. And then and then you know get it down to that level. And that can be a little bit daunting, so you have to do a little research. Like, yep. what is the specific issue here? So that's exactly right, what happened with those Medicare rule changes, yep. right? Mm -hmm. it, it's just people kept hammering home, hey, we can't pay for these LMFDs, we can't play for these other folks. And, and it became pretty easy to identify where the regulatory space was to make that, that change. And then somebody, somebody, I don't know who it was, I'd like to know who got creative with it, because I think what was holding us back all these years and some of us should be kicking ourselves is that we were trying to change the law we were trying yeah. to go to Congress like <laughs> AMFT was forever putting every year you know advocacy behind let's change the law Medicare law so to do that that's like dude we're, we can't change Medicare law because Congress doesn't like messing with Medicare like that and then someone smart just decided said wait a minute in the regulations we have a workaround We'll just have them pay incident two. 
So now that's why that's even possible. It's not because we changed Congress's mind. We just changed some bureaucrats' mind mm -hmm. about some rule, and then they circumvent the rule. Yeah. And this is where relationships really matter, mm -hmm. long-term relationships that you develop with colleagues here. Yes. Um, the woman who runs CMMI, who I'm sure had something to do with this, is a woman by the name of Liz Fowler, who um, used to sit on my board. She's from Kansas. She was on the PCPCC's board. We talked ad nauseum about ways in which we can better pay for integrated behavioral health. Do I know that Liz is responsible? Of course, it was multiple people over many years. But all to say that specificity is needed and creativity, right? Because you're exactly right, Natali. If you keep knocking on Congress's door, you have to be careful when you open up the law because lots of inadvertent things happen. But if you can go in and change a regulation, even if it's not all that you want, it's the start. Um, and I'll give you one quick example. Um, I don't know if Natalie is out there this morning. Yeah, she's but over there. <laughs> Hi, Natalie. We were having a lovely By dinner. By the way, hold on. I just yeah. have to give a shout out to Natalie Lefkovich, who's uh, Who is? Huge she is the belle of the ball. She's a goddess in my eyes. She, um. she has she has the world's best hair. She does have the world's best hair. It's, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely glorious. And she has been my mentor um, in all things administration of of these sorts of communities and clinics that are trying to do this hard work. So we. <clears throat> We were having dinner last night. Sorry, Natalie, I'm about to out you. And at the end of the evening, I started talking about the window of opportunity and policy change. And Natalie was like, oh, I'm so over all of the all of the work that's required for policy change. And she didn't really say it like that. She is so much more dignified. But you, you know what I'm saying. Um, it's hard to get excited about about this, it's hard to believe that the window of opportunity does actually exist, but it takes so long. Mm -hmm. If you think about prescription drugs, we have been fighting the fight on prescription drugs for decades now, and I had the opportunity to meet with Nancy Pelosi's staffer two weeks ago, and he was telling us what he's most proud of over the course of his long career is prescription drug pricing that is just a little piece of the of the law that just changed. And my boss said, really? It's not the Affordable Care Act? And he said, the Affordable Care Act took years and years and years and huge coalitions. We got that prescription drug pricing thing. They didn't think we could do it. He was very much behind it. There was a window of opportunity that he leapt through and didn't give up. And that is where we are right now with behavioral health and mental health services. Everybody's kids are being impacted. Everybody has a coworker who is in pain. Now is the time to double down. And I'm sorry because you're really tired and thank you for caring for us. And I love every single one of you. Um, I'm not a therapist, but I am a grateful patient. <laughs> I think we lost yeah. the chat a while ago, but something that we've been talking about in here is what free time, like this happening in terms of we have clinicians who are just strapped 
burned out mm -hmm. and have very yes. slim margins and finding the energy for the fight because it feels like a fight even as we're talking about partnering together and like finding the, where those values align and connecting around mission sometimes it really feels like a fight and that is pretty exhausting on a group of people that are already exhausted and yeah. i just want to acknowledge that i don't know that we have much to you know to help with that but it's tough well, some of it might be reframing it mm -hmm. as not a fight mm -hmm. um i think that's part of the issue is that sometimes when we think about policy we think of an enemy mm -hmm. um, and yes i'm not naive to think that there are there are bad people in the world and that there are bad leaders in the world and i think when we approach policy when i think of policy i think about um, interests and different people have different interests and agendas it's the same way when i walk in to see a patient Right. I, I might have an agenda, I might have a worldview, I might have a way of thinking about things, I have a, my own background that I bring to the situation. But I have to interface with that patient genuinely. And I think for me it's shifted. You know, I think, I think the same thing applies to like when you think about payers. We think of payers as evil, right? Sort of like they're, they're just below oil companies. Right? And I, th I just think that's the wrong way to, to approach everything in life. Mm -hmm. Right to to think that it's it's you with against them, yeah. As opposed to you bringing your authentic self, prepared to engage, to hear, and to have an exchange with that other individual on a very on as genuine a level as you can, mm -hmm. and be authentic to yourself. In other words, you're not going to like be a pushover and not not bring your full authentic self, but not position yourself against those forces and I know that's hard because it feels like you're swimming upstream mm -hmm. when you're doing this kind of work all the time but for me that's that's what keeps me engaged and positive about it is I, I just reframe it for myself I'm like they're not my enemy they're just like that patient that is at a different place different stage of change mm -hmm. than I would like them to see mm -hmm. but I'm gonna I'm gonna engage them and I'm just gonna you know I'll use a contextual interview. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I yeah. think that's part of it. And 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 with you, Grace, I, I do recognize that it's it is challenging. It is hard. Um, but I think the practice. I, I like to break this down to to the nitty gritty. The practice at the local level is really important because where I learned to kind of, other than than um, being mentored by Marcy here. Other where I learned my policy stuff is really just like as a VHC director, like learning how to talk to my CEO, learning how to talk to my CMO, and learning how to understand them, understand their world, so that I could get the change that I needed at the very local level. I think if you can't even get if you can't get your stuff done on your local level, I mean you, you don't have a shot. Yeah. Right. Beyond that point. Yeah, I think it was the same the same way for me, kind of recognizing as a VHC that there needed to be something different and I had to take some part in it and there was not a lot of free time because no one's paying me for this kind of stuff, unfortunately. Um, and then deciding, you all can't see what we wrote in the chat, but one of the things I said is some people are taking up space at the table that need to go. They don't need to be at the table any longer. They need to get their seat up. And that involves us going out on a limb and trying to so I ran for the board for the National Association of Social Workers for that reason, 
It's a guild. There needs to be more education about integrated care, even within my guild, right? And there's work I have to do within my guild to even get to some of the larger scale policy stuff we're talking about. But it would have been very easy to just be like, oh, all right, well, some, someone else is someone else has got it, but I needed some people to get up from the table that didn't have anything I'm, to offer. I'm just curious, right. I'm just curious, Mike, because we haven't had a chance to talk about this, like what, what your experience has been being on that board? The part I can tell you, um, <laughs> I've learned so hey, much Monica, more. Monica, it's just between you and me. Yeah, <laughs> and all of these millions of podcast listeners. Um, I've learned so much about policy and the behind the scenes stuff. Even like when you're talking about payers, I don't see them as the enemy. I've had an opportunity to have conversations with payers and I understand the level of things that they have to go through to get something changed is freaking insane, right? And so everything now for me is in a different type of a context, right? But there's also, I mean, I'm not saying Marcy has to say it, but so I'm just gonna say it. What I've also learned is there's a lot of elbow rubbing too that is happening behind the door and policy, right? with our guilds, right? But I'm okay being at the table and saying, well, no, 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 like just make sure before we sign off on that, here's what you need to know about integrated care so that we can make sure we have a clear understanding before we sign that we're gonna support ABC, right? Or no, 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 we have stuff to clean up in-house around diversity, equity, and inclusion because we're presenting ourselves this way and we have all this work that we need to do behind the scenes. So I'm okay doing that. I recognize though that there are a lot of my colleagues who maybe are not. Right. But there are things even on your local level, mm-hmm. on your state level. But I'm telling y'all, there are people at the table that need to get up and they're not gonna get up unless they are challenged. Well, yeah. and actually there's a really practical example that just happened this weekend, right? Um, the uh, AWSP, I think, exam. AF, yeah. Yeah. Um, can you ex- explain what so, um, there is an exam for social workers. So the rule is you have to have a national exam to become clinically licensed. You have to pass the national exam. And years ago, there was question around uh, what are the passing rates for marginalized groups? What does it look like? Look like They're like, oh, we don't have it. We don't have it. We don't have it. And then this big report came out all of a sudden. And it's like, yeah, well, we have it and it just doesn't look good. What the heck? So now you're not being transparent. And what it showed is that people of color had a high percentage of fail rate, like astronomical, like ridiculous. So we already can't have the time pay for and get to the point of even getting our education to take the license. And then if you just so happen to get there in tons amount of debt, Now here's another barrier that's happening that you can't even pass this exam. Mm -hmm. And colleagues who have gone to historically black universities are learning not about just the white individuals in our guild that got us here. They are learning about the people of color. They are learning about the indigenous individuals that got us here, but none of that is on the exam, right? Mm -hmm. So the exam is not culturally appropriate. And those people who got that type of training because they wanted to be at a university with people that look like them, it's a high percentage chance they're not going to pass. Yeah. So they're not going to be um, the constituent that's here, the new attendee, Rebecca, who was like, oh, they were, we had great, they're not even going to be sitting at the table to interview with you because they have not even been afforded. And this is an exam that's not just 
like clinical license. We're talking about there's some bachelor's level licenses, right? So we're talking about the continuum of the workforce because we do need to start engaging not just the licensed people, right? Like we have bachelor's levels, associate's level, community health worker. Like we need to engage the entire continuum, but there has to be a license that you pass or certification test that you pass. Mm -hmm. And it's set up for us to not be able to pass. Yeah. That's problematic. And the fact that you were not transparent about it yeah. from the start when asked is even more problematic. So now all of the guilds are like, ooh, distance, yeah. distance, <laughs> distance, right? Because that's not like, all of these things are not gonna be fixed overnight. I hope no one has that like pie in the sky thought process, but you have to start somewhere. You have to be in conversation. Most importantly, you have to be authentic and honest about it, it is what it is. It is what it is and this is what it is and here's what we're gonna to try to do about it and have conversation with the right type of people and that does not always happen. And that is super frustrating. It really quite ticks me off. Mm -hmm. I actually talked to Liz. I don't know if she's here. She probably in the bed still asleep, but <laughs> I was talking to Liz about it because she's ticked off and she's like, I need to do something in Utah. And I'm like, yeah, talk to your people in Utah. Your university covers five states. This impacts your entire mm -hmm. uh, educational system workforce that you're working with. Yeah, talk to somebody, well, get yeah. the laws changed in your state so that people know that this is happening and it's problem because most individuals don't even know that it's happening yeah. that's such a powerful charge monica and the recognition that we have a sphere of influence every one of us is in a place and you said yeah this is a guild but that guild and what's happening there is important and your position in that is important and that's when you were saying like reframing it to we're not enemies that's the piece that does sort of give me the energy to keep going is to look around and say, what can I impact? What is around me? What is that part? And I'm so just like thankful and admire the role that you're taking and the stepping up to that place. And I wish that we could have this conversation forever. And I know we're just getting charged up, but then also here we are at the end of our time. But I think that leads so perfectly to the ending charge that Deepu chose for us. We always end with a moment of reflection, a moment of meaning, and Deepu selected one that we're going to kind of share together, close us out. All right, uh, this is for our spirits and our moral courage to do the work that we are called to do. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we're powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God, higher power, higher spirit. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to manifest the glory of God, your higher power, higher spirit that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As, as we are liberated from our own fear, our, our presence automatically liberates others. Thank you, everybody. Thank, Thank you for being here. So this would be the point of the podcast where we then start like.
debriefing with one another. So it's <laughs> yeah. a weird part because we don't get to do that necessarily here. But um, we're so glad you got a chance to spend time with us today. And thank you all, podcasters, uh, for being here today. I hope this has uh, been fun for all of you. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you, Marcy. Yeah, yeah. Thank, you, Marcy. Yeah. thank you for inviting me.